0: Section thirty seven of G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, nineteen twenty two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arden. G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, nineteen twenty two, by G. K. Chesterton. The Sentimentalism of Big Business, by G. K. Chesterton. Modern flattery, which is mostly flattery of financiers and millionaires and men of big business, is becoming quite as fixed and formal as any flattery in the past. It will be interesting to see whether it is eventually stereotyped into formal titles, like the titles of kings and nobles. For after all, even those antiquated titles all mean something, and must once at least have meant what they said. Our most gracious king was supposed to be gracious. His grace the duke was conceived as having that unbought grace of life, etc., and men call the monarch his majesty because they sincerely thought that monarchy was majestic. But surely the sincerity of our servility is far greater than theirs, and there is no idolatry so hardy as the idolatry of gold. We already have the fixed phrases, and they may soon pass into fixed titles, made out of the adjectives and substantives that recur regularly in the press. If we do not call a millionaire his majesty, we may perhaps call him his energy. If it be a little difficult to call the petrol king gracious, we may at least call him our most efficient king. A hundred words like push and hustle and pep may be gracefully woven into the old heraldic designations, Then a duke, instead of being called his grace, may bear the somewhat exotic title of his go. It would be pleasing to pursue the fancy into the forms of correspondence, explaining when it would be proper to write, very hustling, sir and when only very enterprising sir, or to ask how far the titles would be sufficiently recognized if abbreviated into letters after a name, such as LW for live wire. Such an official understanding would be very convenient, and would save our tired journalists the quite unnecessary trouble of pretending to vary these terms slightly and applying them to every rich man who turns up it would be awkward for the court officials if they were in any sense expected to apply a new royal title to every royal prince, and it is quite as absurd to pretend that there is any such spontaneity or variety about the fixed amount of flattery, which is due to any man who by any method can manage to touch a million. It will be much better when these faintly fluctuating forms are frozen once and for all into a final etiquette, and we have proper tables and works of reference, clearly stating the amount of money involved, and the amount of reverence required for it, as all sorts of totally different kinds of people who have become wealthy by treason or by accident, by making a corner, or by making a mistake, by theft, or by mere thoughtlessness, by being too smart to go right, or by being too stupid to go wrong, have all admittedly to be described in the same terms of eulogy and enthusiasm. It will obviously be better if the terms are settled equally once and for all, so that there may be no jealousy or misunderstanding It is really true that by all historical parallels, this should be the future evolution of the present plutocracy. From being informally, it should come to being formally respected. The mercantile spirit has played much the same part in the formation of modern society as the military spirit in the formation of feudal society. The difference is, unfortunately, that while neither is moral in a complete and satisfactory sense, the former is, so to speak, moral as far as it goes. A man can hardly be a successful soldier without having at least some of the qualities of a good soldier. But a man may be a successful merchant without having any of the qualities that make a man, in the serious social sense, a good merchant. Success and social utility are not connected in the same logical process. John Churchill was a very vile and despicable person in almost everything except his military exploits, but he did serve the state by his military exploits. John D. Rockefeller is also a very paltry person, and it is not even certain that he does serve the state by his commercial exploits. He may help himself at the expense of the Commonwealth, whereas the worst sort of soldier generally helps himself and also helps the Commonwealth. It is this element in the triumphs of mere money-making that makes it so dubious a foundation of the state, but in any case, it is now having its triumphs, and it is now being made the foundation of the state, and as I have said. The natural conclusion would be that the triumphs should be visible triumphs, like the cars and laurels of the Roman imperial triumphs. The natural conclusion would be that what is the foundation of the state should also be the ornamental superstructure of the state, like the banners of heraldry on the foundation of feudalism. I do not say that Lord Leverholm will ever enter Port Sunlight like Apollo in the Chariot of the Sun, with less successful salt boilers dragged behind him in chains, and I am quite sure that if ever he does, he will forget to have a slave behind him to whisper, remember that you are mortal. I do not say that the millionaire will revive the pennon of heraldry, and I am sure he will not revive the lance of chivalry. But allowing that all these images are merely symbolical, it remains true that financial industrialism like feudalism has to some extent solidified itself into a definite social formation. Good employers do attempt to treat the service of the firm as a sort of family. Bad employers do treat it as a sort of slave compound. There is something like a uniform, though the former may try to treat it like the tartan of a clan, and the latter only like the yellow livery of a convict. There is something like a court of justice, though the latter may make it rather a court of injustice. There is something like a fountain of honor, though in the latter, the commercial morality may tend to honor men for not being honorable. A system of fines and holidays and promotions and expulsions does go to make up something rather like a kingdom, and it is not really a fantastic but a logical development that it should ultimately include the pomp and titles of a king. Now one of our first objects is to see that that kingdom does not come. In that sense we are rebels, though we are rebels against a royalty of the future rather than a royalty of the past. In that sense we are iconoclasts, not against all the old idols of the marketplace but emphatically against this new idol of the market. We do definitely wish to prevent the trademark coming to have the dignity of a crest. We do definitely wish to prevent the livery of a servant from seeming like the uniform of a soldier. And in face of all the sloppy sentiment in which this vulgar system is already soaked, our attitude may come to have something that seems merely derisive and destructive, something that has the responsibility of ridicule. If our romance is the romance of business, I will be a realist. If the millionaire is a philanthropist, I will be a cynic. I had almost said that if he is a philanthropist, I will be a misanthrope. About the whole of this industrial illusion, we cannot be anything but hostile. And about what is hostile, there must always be something harsh. Fortunately, the financial idealists are always willing to meet us halfway. They are always ready to make themselves so ridiculous that nobody could reproach us for our ridicule. Capitalism is actually trying to make itself attractive, but fortunately, has not the faintest notion of how to do it. Like Jezebel, or like one of its own unfortunate female clerks, it only knows how to paint its face, and tire its head, and look out of the window. In short, the most striking thing about the servile state, more striking than its ignominy, than its inhumanity, is its rotten, reeking, sodden sentimentalism. It is impossible to describe it in dignified and educated language, it can only be described in its own language. Nothing adequate, can be said either before or after an extract like the following this is a true story of american bankers who believe in the personal touch these mighty men of finance are planning a convention in new york to take place early in october and have appointed a committee of 100 bankers to make the convention human for that we must call on the women confided seward presser president of the bankers trust company and chairman of the hundred we want attractive young women with level heads There were 134 girls who met the requirements, all of whom are now being coached on how to meet and what to tell a banker. The first thing taught is how to smile warmly, glowingly. No, they mustn't grin. Yes, that is a true story of American bankers who believe in the personal touch, and that is a true paragraph from an English newspaper controlled by an English editor, presumably sane and still at large, who also believes in the human touch and would seem to be not a little touched. I am not sure that I have ever learned the lesson of what to tell a banker. It seems to depend a good deal on one's economic relations with the bank. Most of us can imagine something that we should like to tell a banker, but cannot at the present moment tell a banker. But after carefully studying the explanations of Mr. Seward Prosser, president of the bankers' trust company, I have come to the conclusion that I should have no hesitation about what to tell that banker. I think I could promise faithfully to smile. I might even find it possible... To smile warmly, glowingly. I fear it is only too possible that I might grin. Consider in what, a maudlin madhouse, we live today, call up the vision of this romantic vista of girls sitting in long rows and being taught by a financier to smile at him warmly and glowingly. Morally, it is disgusting enough, of course, but intellectually, a certain enjoyment of it is surely legitimate. There is always an interest in human variety, and therefore in human vulgarity, and vulgarity so rich in rank as this is a rare experience for the collector. But the only interest it has for me is that this is a sample of the sort of sentiment and romance with which businessmen are trying to humanize business. These are the stately manners of the new feudalism, at the court of the Yankee King Arthur. These are the plumes and pennons of the new chivalry. Now I do not think we need fear it. End of section 37 Recording by Arden